Now, in chapters 7 and 8, we have what I've labeled a historic interlude. And it's very similar to what we had in the little prophecy of Haggai. You'll recall that in the middle of that prophecy, that this man Haggai was sent to the priests to ask concerning a law, a law concerning cleansing, anything that is ceremonially clean, when it touches that which is unclean, will it make it clean? And of course it won't. And that which is ceremonially unclean, if it touches that which is clean, will it make it unclean? And the answer is yes, it will. Now, in this historic interlude, we have the same problem approach from a little different angle. And I think that the important thing now is to get this before us. So let me read here in chapter 7 at verse 1 of Zechariah, and I'll read several verses. And it came to pass in the fourth year of King Darius that the word of the Lord came unto Zechariah in the fourth day of the ninth month, even in Shishlu. All right, the impressive thing here is that, again, he's going to have a message for these people, and it's going to be a very important message. And he makes it clear it's not his own message, but it's the word of the Lord. And it was in the fourth year of the king Darius, and it was the ninth month of Cheslev, and it was the fourth day. And if you want me to bring it right down to our calendar, that was December the 4th, 518. Now, you recognize it was during that same period that Haggai was speaking to the people in a very practical way. Now, will you notice what the problem is? It says, when they had sent unto the house of God Sherezer and Regimelech and their men to pray before the Lord and to speak unto the priests who were in the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophets, saying, Should I weep in the fifth month, separating myself as I have done these so many years? All right, now this is what is before us. And when it says here, when they had sent unto the house of God. Now, actually, this delegation had originally been in Babylon. These are Babylonian names. And I have put in my notes that it's a delegation had come to Jerusalem from Babylon. Actually, when it says here that they were in the house of the Lord, these men were sent unto the house of God, they actually came from Bethel. Now, Bethel means, you remember, the house of God. It was old Jacob that named it. And it was the place, as he said that night when God appeared to him, he says, this is the very door of heaven. This is the temple or the house of God. He thought he'd run away from God, but he hadn't. Now, these people have come down from Bethel. Bethel was in the northern kingdom. It was actually in the area that the ten tribes were. Now, let me ask you a question. Who do you think that these people were that came down? Do you think they were of the tribe of Judah? Well, may I say to you, they were not of the tribe of Judah. 
they probably were of the tribe either of Benjamin or Ephraim, probably of Ephraim. And if you go back to the book of Ezra, which I'll not do today, because we've already been over that book and I called attention to it at the time, you will find that many people who returned from the captivity went back to towns. Some of them are way up in the north of the Sea of Galilee and in that area. Now, all of that belonged to the ten tribes that constituted the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, when anybody says they are the ten lost tribes, may I say to you, you need to really examine the Scripture rather carefully, because those that return would naturally go back to where they came from. And many went to the northern part, that was the kingdom of Israel. They happened to be folk born in the Babylonian captivity that are now returning as Jews back to their own tribe. And there's no ten lost tribes. So if you feel like that England or the United States happened to make up the ten lost tribes, may I say to you, you are very much lost in the maze of Scripture because they are not lost, but you are. Because actually, they were not lost, and that makes this a very important passage of Scripture because they here actually refers to man who came down from Bethel, the place called the house of God. Now, they've come down with a question. In fact, you have here a question that Zechariah gives a threefold answer to, and it has to do with a ritual. Is a ritual right or is a ritual wrong? That is the question that they ask. And the picture is just simply this. You see, they had come down from the north, and they had been into captivity, and they had set aside days of fasting and days of weeping and mourning, and they had continued that after the captivity. And God was not blessing them. Oh, there was a certain amount of prosperity had come. Many of them were building their homes, and they were getting very comfortable, and some of them affluent, and yet they go and weep and mourn. And they say, we've been doing that, and God hasn't blessed us. What about it? What about a ritual? That's the question that is here. Actually, the right and wrong of a ritual. And this is an important question, and I'll tell you why it's an important question. Because today we're seeing a recrudescence of ritualistic religion. There's a movement toward formalism, adopting a ritual. And it's always in evidence when people cease to think, when they get away from the person of Christ. Then they start either getting up and down or marching around. They have to start doing something. And it is a time of spiritual decline. It was a time when they fought over the prayer book in Europe, as if that was important, whether you should stand up or sit down or kneel, or how should you do it. And then there are many people today that want a liturgy or an elaborate ritual, 
And there are religions that are called Christian religions that are ritualistic. Some are liturgical. And even those of us that are nonconformists that come from out of the Reformation, we say a ritual is repugnant. We despise a ritual. We see in it evil continually. But even in our services, we have a certain amount of it. We open with the doxology, and everybody stands up for that. And we close with the benediction, and somewhere between there's an offering and a sermon. Now, what is the value of a ritual? God gave to the nation Israel a religion. That's the only religion he ever gave. And it was ritualistic. It was loaded with ritual. And the question arises, is a ritual right or is a ritual wrong? And that's the question of these people. They said, we've been going through the ritual, we've been weeping, we've been carrying on, and should we continue to practice it? Now, Zechariah is going to answer their question. He's the prophet of the remnant. He is encouraging them. Most of Israel, both the northern and southern tribes, had not returned. And they were doing well and prospering. And they also had this same question. They were going through that. And so God has an answer. And the very interesting thing is that God's answer is also a message from God. Now, I'm just going to get down to that answer. Here it is, verses 4 and 5. Then came the word of the Lord of hosts unto me, saying, Speak unto all the people of the land and to the priests, saying, When ye fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, that would be August and October, even those seventy years, that is, when they were in captivity, did ye at all fast unto me, even to me? And when ye did eat, and when ye did drink, did not ye eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? God says, really, when you went through your ritual, did you do it for me? And did you do it to honor me and to praise me? Or did you do it as a legalistic sort of an exercise that you thought would build up on the credit side something that would make you acceptable to me and cause me to bless you. Well, to begin with, God never had given to them any ritual that had weeping in it and fasting. Did you know that God never gave to his people fast days? He gave to his people feast days. Gave them seven feast days. Now the question is, are these wrong? Well, we're going to have a threefold answer. Let me give it to you. Number one, he'll deal with it here. When the heart is right, the ritual is right. The second answer is, when the heart is wrong, the ritual is wrong. And the third part of the answer is, and we'll get that in chapter 8, God's purpose concerning Jerusalem is unchanged by any ritual. And that's true today. A great many people think a ritual is so important. My friend, the important thing is the heart. 
It's not the ritual that you go through. That has to do with a lot of head knowledge. But what about the heart? Now, Zechariah will give them God's answer concerning this. And we're going to find that there actually is a threefold answer to this question concerning a religious ritual. Their point is this. We've been fasting. We've been weeping and wailing. And it looks pretty silly now, and it's got very boring. After all, it's a religious rite we're going through, and we're not getting any results. God doesn't seem to be blessing us. And what's wrong? What should we do about it? Well, there'll be a threefold answer. The first is, beginning here at verse 4, when the heart is right, The ritual is right. And that goes down through verse 7, from verse 4 to 7. Then verses 8 through 14, when the heart is wrong, the ritual is wrong. And then the third answer we'll get in chapter 8. God's purpose concerning Jerusalem is unchanged by any ritual. And that ought to answer the question of a great many folk today, who are saying, oh, let's do this or that and hasten the coming of Christ. My friend, you couldn't move it up one second by anything that you do. Don't you know that he's running this universe and that anything that you do is not going to interfere with his plan or program? You can't interfere with him. And these people thought that a ritual might have something to do with changing God's plans. God lets them know in chapter 8, He intends to accomplish his purpose. Now, let's notice this first of all. The ritual is right when the heart is right. Verse 4, we read, Then came the word of the Lord of hosts unto me, saying, Speak unto all the people of the land and to the priests, saying, When ye fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, and that was August and October, even those 70 years, now that's during the 70 years captivity, did ye at all fast unto me, even unto me. God makes it very clear to them, and actually a good translation would be, did you really fast? Did you really fast unto God? Did you really do it unto him? After all, God's making it very clear now that he does not approve nor does he condemn the ritual. He inquires into the motive, and he actually avoids the question. In their specific case, they'd fasted, as they said, these so many years. Oh, boy, you can read between the lines there. It had become boresome to them. Worshiping God had really become boresome. And the Lord is saying to them, if you really want to know the truth, God says, I was bored with you also. I thought you were very boresome. I'll be very frank with you that I think there are a lot of so-called Christian services today that causes God to yawn. I think that he says, ho-hum, here they go again, jumping through some little hoop as if they think that will please me. Now, God says, you didn't do it unto me, and God produces evidence. Verse 6, And when ye did eat, and when ye did drink, did not ye eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? When the fasting was over, you couldn't wait to get to the table. When you were eating, did you do it unto me? You remember Paul says to the believer, 
meat doesn't command us to God, whether you eat or whether you don't. But whatever you do, whether it be to eat or to drink, do all to the glory of God. Now, if you can fast to the glory of God, you fast. But if you are doing it for some reason other than the high motive, then don't do it. That's exactly what he's saying. It's the same thing that he says faith without works is dead. Our Christian faith is not a Sunday affair. Sunday clothes that are put away on Monday morning, no good. And the test of the Sunday service is the life the next day. And he's going to deal with them in the last part of this chapter on these very specifics that had to do with their business dealings, their social contacts, their amusements. And these were the things that revealed that what they did, they did not do it unto the Lord at all. And that there's something more important than a ritual. And that will determine whether the ritual is right or not. Verse 7, "...should ye not hear the words which the Lord hath cried by the former prophets, when Jerusalem was inhabited and in prosperity, and its cities round about it, when men inhabited the Negev and the Shephelah. The Shephelah were the plains around Beersheba. That's plains. That section, and driving, in fact, all the way up from Beersheba, whether you go to Hebron or go over toward the coast, toward Ekron, why, you are in what looks like big pasture lands. It reminds me of the plains of West Texas. That's the reason I didn't like it, because as a boy, I lived in West Texas. That's in the days before they irrigated that land there. And I want to tell you, when a wind came through, it could really blow up a sandstorm, the like of which you've never seen or heard of before. And that land is the same thing. God says to them, you went through all this ritual before, and when you were in the land, and what happened? Why? You went into captivity. Why? Because you did not obey me. Now, he's going to begin in verse 8 to show that a ritual is wrong if the heart is wrong. And when he does that, actually, that's not another way of saying the same thing. God will put down on their lives, as we said, specific commandments. And the commandments that have to do with the man's relationship to man as well as God. And my friend, this idea today that we can serve Christ, even go through a little ritual of doing something, and we're not really right with him. The Lord Jesus said to Simon Peter, you remember, and I think it's the most wonderful thing. You know what I would have done if I'd have been in his place after his resurrection and had come to Simon Peter? I would have bawled him out for denying me. And I would have told him what kind of a fellow I thought he was. You know what the Lord Jesus said to him? He said, do you love me? My friend, it's not the ritual you go through. I want to pass on to you something now with this tremendous thing before us that is very pertinent for us today. Some church members, to them, religion is a rite or a ritual. 
are a legalistic and lifeless form, a liturgical system marked by meaningless and wearisome verbiage. You know, there's a lot of religious garbage in our so-called conservative and evangelical churches today. There is a ceaseless quoting of tired adjectives and a jumble of pious platitudes. I hear this today. Let me pass on some of them to you. We want to share our faith. Most people don't have enough faith to share, friends. It's not your faith that you share about how wonderful you are or what wonderful things God did for you. You witness to Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did for you. You're not sharing anything, but we use that. And now we talk today in salvation, commit your life to Jesus. Commit your life? What do you mean? Well, they say yield your life to him. Do you think he wants your life? He says our righteousness, even our so-called good deeds, are filthy rags in his sight. What are you going to do? Send him your dirty laundry? God doesn't want your dirty laundry, my friend. We've gotten a habit of using words that are taking away the real meaning of the gospel. And here's another word that sure is being worn out today. The tread is really becoming thin on the word love. And that's a high word of Scripture. And it's been worn out on the freeway of present-day usage. It's been emasculated of its rich, vital, virile, and vigorous Bible meaning. It's been degraded to the level of a bumper sticker that says, Honk if you love Jesus. And a fellow in a little car the other day, I noticed people ahead of me were honking and going around. And he was driving very slowly in the fast lane on the freeway. And car had to car, had to detour around this. And I came up, and I thought, well, I'm going to honk at this fellow. And then I saw the sticker. The sticker said, honk if you love Jesus. And I went around him, and I gave him a look. And I felt like if I could have got to the place where I could have spoken to him, I would have told him that if you love Jesus, you don't run around honking your horn. If you love Jesus, you're going to live a life of obedience to him, and you will be courteous to other people. Well, may I say to you that today there's a great deal of churchianity that's bland and bloodless, tasteless and colorless. It's devoid of the warmth and feeling. There's no personal relationship with Christ that is meaningful and productive. It's like that liberal, he said it made him sick to hear people talk of a personal relationship with Christ. Well, I'd sure make him sick if he listened to this program, because that's the thing you have to have, my friend, is a personal relationship with Christ, and your ritual and your liturgy is not worth a snap of your fingers unless it's got a life that is related to Jesus Christ. Now, may I move on? If there's no deep yearning for a life that's well-pleasing to him, no real study of his word, no stimulating desire to know his word, no real study of the word, not excited about the Bible and the word of God. Church membership for a great many people today and certain churches, it's just like a young man falling in love with a furnished apartment and marrying 
an electric stove and a refrigerator and a vacuum cleaner and a garbage disposal and a wet mop. That's just about what it means. I heard of a maiden lady years ago who was asked why she had never gotten married. And she gave this very interesting answer. She says, well, I have a stove that smokes. I have a dog that growls around the house. And I have a parrot that cusses. And a lazy cat that lies around all day loafing and then's out half of the night. Says, why do I need a husband? May I say to you, that's the kind of a relationship that a great many folk have to God and to Christ today. And yet they have a ritual in which they jump up and down and run all around. But it's meaningless. Let's stop playing church today and start loving Christ and living for Him. I want to share with you right now two of the most remarkable letters that I've had in many a day. The first one comes from a little town in Tennessee. And I'm not going to identify it because I do not want to identify these people. They've written wonderful letters. Listen to this. I discovered your program out of Memphis only about six months ago, just when I needed it most. Isn't that just like our lovely Lord? I am a born-again Christian, only two years old. That's really something for a 55-year-old grandmother to have to admit. My husband is a retired, regular army dentist, heart patient. We moved 33 times in 26 years before retiring on this little farm here in the boondocks. We played church. I even taught a women's Sunday school class, and my husband was a deacon. I can't speak for him, but all I had was head knowledge and very little heart knowledge. And the young minister in the church where we have gone for 14 years is so liberal, he thinks the belief in the virgin birth unnecessary and sees no conflict between transcendental meditation and Christianity. We stuck it out for a year and then left the church. I would be less than honest to say I don't miss a church home since I've had church homes like that. Now, will you listen to the other letter? It comes from Southern California, and I'll not identify the place. And this is a very remarkable letter. Will you hear it carefully? I am a wife and mother under 30, and I've been a Christian since I was three and a half. I've often thought of writing, but didn't think I had anything meaningful to say. Well, I've changed my mind. Several years ago, I knew a lady quite well who was constantly pushing your program at me. This lady was a terrible housekeeper, had an unhappy husband and marriage, and five unruly children. But she listened to her Christian programs from morning till night. Naturally, I associated her fanaticism with you and would not listen. During the past three years, however, I've been listening to you weekdays and sometimes on Sunday before church. And I found you to have a rare gift and so on. I'm certainly glad you dedicated your work to Christ and so on. Now, I'm dropped down. I love the study of the Word. I get so much from your theology and your knowledge of the Scriptures. I wish I could find a pastor locally who preached as well. And by the way, there are several men in her area, and we're going to let her know about them, that do lots better than I do. And I can assure you that they're young men who are expositors. Now, will you listen? Our time is so short, and I'm glad 
You're filling each minute with the vital news of God. I wish I could have seen past that latest disorderly life a long time ago. God bless you and your work, thou good and faithful servant. I want to say to you, friends, here was a woman. Oh, listen to all the Christian programs. And a fanatical Christian and had a home and a life that was a disgrace to the cause of Christ. My friend, a ritual is no good for a person like that. There's nothing wrong with a ritual. If you're right with God and you love Jesus Christ, I still love the story of the three bears (laughs) that the little girl... You remember that I've told this before on this program. Their mother was having guests for dinner and sent her upstairs to go to bed early, and she gave her instructions. She knew how to undress and put on a gown or pajamas and get down on her knees and have her prayer. And so the next morning, why the mother asked the little girl at the breakfast table how she did, said, fine. Says, did you say your prayers? The little girl says, well, kind of. She says, what do you mean, kind of? Well, she says, I got down on my knees to say that memorized prayer I got, And it just occurred to me that maybe God got tired of hearing the same thing all the time. So I just crawled into bed, and I told him the story of the three bears. My friend, you know, I think God enjoyed that evening. That precious little girl already sensing that there's something wrong with a ritual when the heart is wrong. And the ritual can be all right. And I think God listened to the story of the three bears. I wish that some church services today could be that interesting, by the way. And I think it would get God's attention. Why all these problem churches today? Why all these problem Christians today? I'll tell you why. It's because, my friend, that we go through a rite, we go through a ritual, we perform a liturgy, and I don't care, even we in fundamental churches open with the doxology and close with the benediction, and we do have something in between, and we feel like we've been to church. Really? Have we? Have we been drawn to the person of Christ? Do we know him? Do we love him? And friends, if you do that, you can go through any ritual you want to. You can stand on your head, and that'll be all right if you're right with the Lord. Now, friends, there's still a Very mooted question for people today. Should I go through this ceremony or should I do this and do that? Now, I believe that certain ceremonies, certain rituals are important. I think that there are two sacraments in the church, and I believe that they're all important. One is baptism, and the other is the Lord's Supper, and I think they're all important. But the important thing is, baptism is believers' baptism. And I think the emphasis should be taken off of the mode and put on the heart of the one being baptized. Are you born again? Now, I personally believe in immersion, although I was raised in another church, but I have been both sprinkled and immersed. I can't miss, as you can see, my wife was Southern Baptist, and she's been immersed, and she still thinks that that's pretty important. And I said, it sure would be embarrassing for you if you and I get up there 
And we find out it wasn't immersion, it was the other. And I've had the other, and you haven't. Well, I say that facetiously. I say it for this reason, as important as the sacraments are, and I believe in them. But I want to say this, they're no good unless the heart's right. Baptism is no good unless, my friend, you've turned to Jesus Christ and you have a real personal relationship with him and your sins have been forgiven. And I think that the Lord's Supper is absolutely meaningless for a great many people. It'd be better if they didn't go through with it. But if your heart's right, it's absolutely important. It was Lang who made this statement. He says, God's eye of grace and our eye of faith meet in the sacraments, the rituals of the church. I go along with that. That's wonderful. And therefore, that makes this section all important. And in the first, we saw that the ritual is right when the heart is right. You see, before the captivity, God judged Jerusalem when the heart of the people was far from him, though they went through the rituals. You see, ritual is right when the heart's right. But when the heart's far from God, it's meaningless. And that's the reason that God said to them, "...should ye not hear the words which the Lord hath cried by the form of prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and in prosperity and its cities round about it, when man inhabited the Negev, that's the south, and the Shephelah, that's the plain country that's south also, and all of that was inhabited." Now, God says to them, very frankly, you went through the rituals back before the captivity, and I sent you into captivity. Why? The ritual had nothing to do with it. Their heart was wrong, and that was the thing that's important. Now we come here in verse 8 of chapter 7 now of Zechariah. A ritual is wrong if the heart's wrong. Now, that's not another way of saying the same thing. Now, in this section here, God puts down upon these people that which is very specific. That is, he spells out the thing they were doing that alienated them from God. And what he actually does in this section, he takes that part of the Ten Commandments that have to do with a man's relationship to man. In the first part, it had to do with man's relationship to God. When the heart was not rightly related to God, the ritual is wrong. Now, here, the ritual is wrong if the heart is wrong. And so, he reveals here specifically the things they were doing, and he puts these commandments right down upon their lives. We today are not actually dealing with sin as we should here in this section, either last time or today, I'm not talking about sin in the life. I'm not talking about that. If you knew me like I know myself, you'd tune the radio out, but wait a minute, don't touch the button, because if I knew you like you know yourself, I don't think I'd talk to you. May I say to you, we're sinners. When I was pastor in downtown Los Angeles, I had a dear little lady, she'd been a former Bible teacher, and I used to talk about the fact that we're saved sinners. And she always would want to correct me on that. She'd say, Dr. McGee, after we're saved, we're not sinners. 
Well, I said, I don't know about you, but I'm still a sinner. She said, why, no. If your sins have been forgiven, why, you're not a sinner. I said, no, I'm a saved sinner. I'm a forgiven sinner, but I'm still a sinner. And I will be a sinner until that day. Beloved, it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. We'll see him as he is. Now, in that day, when you see Vernon McGee, I won't be a sinner. But until that day, I'm a sinner. You want to know something? You are too. We're sinners before God. And I'm delighted to know that's coming back in style today. It was Dr. Carl Menninger up in Topeka, Kansas. And he has a book out. He's changed his position. He used to go along with Freudian psychology. You know that the reason that you're such a lousy person is because your mama didn't give you the proper affection that you should have had. Or maybe you weren't a breastfed baby. And that's the reason that today you've gone in for sex. Oh, my friend, what nonsense that really was. He says this, and I'm quoting now. He says, "...the realities of personal guilt and sin have been glossed over as only symptoms of emotional illness or environmental conditioning for which the individual isn't considered responsible." But he adds, "...there is sin which cannot be subsumed under verbal artifacts such as disease, delinquency, deviancy." There is immorality. There is unethical behavior. There is wrongdoing. In other words, my friend, you and I are sinners. That's what we are. I've been saying it for years. And I did study psychology in college, but I never did even buy up behaviorism because I frankly believe that the Bible knows more about humanity, knows about our heart, God alone knows our heart. The heart's desperately wicked. Who can know it? Only God knows it. And he alone knows it. You know, if we could see ourselves like God sees us, we couldn't stand ourselves. And only God could put up with us. And only God puts up with us. If we would only come to the Word of God and rest in the Word of God, that's what he's going to do here is put... These commandments right down on them. And we need to be specific. Let me illustrate what I mean. And this is going to hurt. Every now and then someone writes in and said, you stepped on my toes, but I thank you for it. Well, I don't mean to step on your toes. I'm trying to tell you what the Word of God says. But listen to this. If all the church officers of this country would simply read the pastoral epistles, First, Second Timothy and Titus, and see what God's requirements are for being an officer in the church. And just follow these simple requirements that are given there. Over one half of the officers of this country would resign before next Sunday. The church would be better off. And I think a revival would break out in many places. You read those. When I went through first. In Second Timothy and Titus, I received less mail from listeners during that period than any period we've been in since we've been going through the Bible. You know why? They don't like that. Why don't we follow 
what the Word of God has to say. Now, even some of us preachers, I think, could have to walk out of the pulpit and never enter it again if we followed, really, what the Word of God says. And again, I'm not talking about sin, using that word again. I'm talking about the fact that we do not meet the requirements of God's Word. Little wonder that the church is in the problem that it's in today. No wonder it's filled with a bunch of babies sucking their thumbs, crying loud and long unless they're given some attention, and a rattle to play with, and a yo-yo, and a yo-yo's appropriate for them because they're up and down on a string all the time. And they just take some little course of instruction, and they think that makes them a full-grown child of God in a few weeks. And may I say that these little courses are not even an all-day sucker for the babes. I remember that during the war, they needed officers, and they put in a course. Ninety days, they made second lieutenants, and these were called the Wonder Boys. We sure got a lot of Wonder Christians today that know nothing about the Word of God. Let me illustrate again what I'm talking about. We have been almost five years going through the Bible. And I feel, very frankly, and I'll confess this today, I feel like I'm a babe as far as the Word of God is concerned. And I've missed so much, friends, as we've gone through it, even at this slow pace. And I'm very frank to say to you right now, I hesitate to begin the study of Revelation, although I consider it the most mechanical, the most simple book in the Word of God. And somebody says, but you've had over four and a half years now of preparation. Aren't you ready for it? No, I don't feel that I'm really ready for it. I approach it with fear and trembling. There are pastors and teachers today who haven't been in a church or with a group for just a few years, two or three years, and they already have started teaching Revelation. Why, my friend, there are 65 books that come before Revelation. Why are they turning today? Well, prophecy is popular, and they make it sensational. And the book of Revelation, I don't think it's a sensational book. This time, when I go through, I'm going to try to take out all of this weird and wild teaching that's going the rounds today that's sensational. Sir Robert Anderson called this the wild utterances of prophecy mongers. May I say there are many of us that we're willing to settle for the better things of life when God wants us to have the best things of life. Oh, that we had put our lives under the spotlight of the Word of God. Now listen to him here, verse 8. And the Word of the Lord came unto Zechariah, saying, and again I want to emphasize this, that Zechariah is not just giving his opinion. He's saying to them here, this is what God has to say, and this is God's answer to you and that the ritual is wrong if the heart is wrong, and he's going to put down the spotlight on them. I'm reading verse 9. Now, thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment, and show mercy and compassions every man to his brother. It might be well for us to pull up the last commandments and look at them today. The first 
three commandments have to do with the man's relationship with God. Then there is a bridge, and that's the man's relationship to his parents. There is a period in his life that little fellow in the home looks up to mama and papa, and they're God to him. And that's the way God intended it to be. And that's the reason they're to obey their parents when they're growing up, because then later on they'll be able to obey the Lord Jesus. Now, will you notice, but when you come to the last commandments, the last five, will you listen to this? Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, his mainservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that's your neighbor's, not his Cadillac or the lovely home that he lives in. You're not to covet these things at all. So let's put these commandments right down here upon us. And will you notice, thus speaketh the Lord, execute true judgment. Don't bear false witness and show mercy and compassion. You see, you're not to steal, not to lie, not to covet. You're what? You're to show mercy and compassion every man to his brother, and oppress not the widow. Oh, boy, this is getting right down to it now. Nor the fatherless, the sojourner, nor the poor. And let none of you imagine evil in his heart against his brother. Don't imagine evil. Now, the Lord Jesus brought, I think, all the commandments up. He only took two. But he said, if you're angry with your brother, you're guilty of murder. And what he's saying here is, in Israel, they went through the rituals. But, oh boy, you ought to have met them on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. But Friday night, Oh, they started through the rituals again. They would weep and mourn and fast and bring sacrifices. And when we get to Malachi, God says that you said those sacrifices made you sick. God says, you ought to have been in my position. They nauseated me. Now, will you notice what he's saying here? Verse 11, "...but they refused to hearken and pulled away the shoulder, stopped their ears that they should not hear." They didn't want to hear what God wanted to hear. And there are people right now, if they haven't already turned me off, they want to turn me off. Why? Because they don't want to hear this sort of thing today. They pull away the shoulder. Oh, how vivid that is. When I was a little fellow in southern Oklahoma in school, I think I was in fifth grade, and the little country school put on a program, and my class sitting down front, and I was causing a disturbance. I don't know why I was such a good boy, but I was causing some kind of a disturbance. My father, who's sitting in the back, he walked down, he touched me on the shoulder, and I turned around. When he touched me on the shoulder, I pulled that shoulder away. You know, oh, what a brat that is that'll do a thing like that. My dad took me by the hand. He led me out the side door, and he says, Son, I'm going to give you a whipping. That wasn't new, but I knew that was coming anyway. He didn't give me any news, but he said, I'm not going to give it to you because you were making a disturbance. I'm going to give it to you because when I put my hand on your shoulder, you pulled away from me. You're disobedient. That's the reason. And then he impressed upon me for the next few minutes that you don't do that sort of thing. That was Israel. They pulled away the shoulder. 
God touched them on the shoulder. And how many people today, even in our churches, God's touching them on the shoulder and say, wait a minute, don't do that. Don't live that kind of a life. And they pull the shoulder away and they stop their ears and they don't want to hear what God has to say. My little grandson, I was babysitting out in the yard. He did something he shouldn't have done. He got over my flower bed and he was ruining one of my camellias. I made him get out. He got out all right, but he looked at me and says, I am not going to get out. And he takes after his grandmother quite a bit, as you can see. And so I said to him, listen, you get out. And he started back. And I put my hand on his shoulder to stop him. That same little thing, he pulled away. And he reminded me of a boy about 60 years ago. And I knew what my dad did. And since I'm his grandfather, I brought him over and sat down, turned him across my knee. And I want to tell you that I gave him quite a little lesson there. And my daughter applauded me for it. She says, I thought you had him so spoiled that you'd never correct him. I said, I remember what I got as a boy. Pulled away the shoulders, stopped the ears that they should not hear. Yet they are refusing to listen to these commands of God. Now, friends, God spells out this word sin today. God says you're a sinner, and he'll spell it out for you. What is it that's in your life that's displeasing to God? God says, I'll deal with you relative to that. Now, verse 12, Yea, they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts hath sent in his Spirit by the former prophets. Therefore came a great wrath from the Lord of hosts, and the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, and the carrying away of those people into Babylon. It was a sad thing. It was a tragic thing. It was an awful thing. They were religious. They were going through a ritual. But their heart was far from God. They were a disgrace to him. Verse 13, Therefore it's come to pass that as he cried, and they would not hear, so they cried, and I would not hear, saith the Lord of hosts. God said, I cried to them, and I pled with them. They wouldn't listen to me. Then they got into trouble. And they said, oh, we don't want to go into captivity. We'll come back. God says, I didn't hear you. I, I didn't hear you. There are a lot of prayers today that God doesn't hear. I get a little weary today of this sentimental rot. It's even been on the screen, on our TV screens, and these weepy sob sister stories. Some reprobate, either man or woman, lived any kind of a life, and then they have a little child, and the little child gets sick, and they go in and kneel by the bed and plead with God. I don't think God hears you, friend. I'll be honest with you. You've got to get right with God yourself before you're going to get anywhere with Him praying. All of this is nothing in the world but just religious rot. That's all in the world that it is, and it won't get you anywhere at all. That's the thing he's making clear to him. Now, verse 14, he says, "...but I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations whom they knew not. Thus the land was desolate after them, that no man passed through nor returned, for they laid the pleasant land desolate." Now, I want you to note that God says that 
he made the pleasant land desolate. He not only judged them, but the land. And there are a great many people today that go to that land and are greatly disappointed because they've heard it's the land of milk and honey. It was that at one time. It was probably like the Garden of Eden in that land. But you go over there today, and I hear a great many people, and I think they're trying to kid themselves. We've had many people on tour say, Oh, isn't this a beautiful land? I want to say this to you. It's the rockiest. It's the driest. It's the most desolate. If anybody can find anything pretty driving down from Jerusalem to Jericho today in the Dead Sea, I wish you'd point it out to me. I've been down there, I think, a dozen times, and I haven't seen that which is pretty. It's as bad as the desert in eastern California and Arizona. It's really a desolate place. And there's very few beautiful spots in that land today. It was the pleasant land, but it's the desolate land today. And one of the proofs that prophecy today is not being fulfilled is the fact that that land has not been restored. Oh, I know they've moved back and become a nation, and they've been in trouble ever since. And I heard from a friend who had just returned from over there that taxes in Israel are higher than any place in the world today. Now, you're going to call that the promised land, and you're going to hold God responsible for that? I don't think he returned them back there today. And that 20% of the people that are there now want to leave the land. What's that going to do to these interpreters, these Bible teachers that are going around and trying to date everything to the beginning of that nation Israel? I say to you today, friends, that's a desolate land. It's going to become the pleasant land someday. And that brings us now to the 8th chapter. And the 8th chapter is God's third explanation to them concerning the question, we have gone through the ritual and the liturgy, why hasn't God blessed us? Well, the first one is, when the heart is right, the ritual's all right. And when the heart's wrong, the ritual is wrong. In other words, the ritual doesn't have anything to do with it. And some call this a positive answer. I want to say to you, this is really positively positive. God's purpose concerning Jerusalem is unchanged by any ritual. Whether you go through it or you don't go through it, you're not going to change God's plan and purpose. Thank God for that. He'll carry through his plan and his purpose. Now, that makes this a remarkable chapter. And there are certain words that occur in this chapter that are very important. In fact, you can hang the meaning of this chapter on these words. Oh, there are about five of them. Let me call your attention to them. The expression, Lord of hosts. And by the way, Dr. Unger follows the interpretation of calling that he's the Lord of armies, which probably is more literal. But the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies, that occurs 18 times in this chapter. Apparently, he's very important in this chapter, the Lord of hosts. Jerusalem occurs six times, and Zion occurs once. And Jerusalem 
is a geographical city located in Israel over yonder in the Middle East today. And it never has changed. Still the same place. And when he says Jerusalem here, he means Jerusalem. He doesn't mean London or Washington or Rome or Los Angeles or any other place. When he says Jerusalem, God means Jerusalem. And the word jealous occurs three times. The word remnant occurs twice. And remember, it was only a remnant from all 12 tribes that had returned back to the land. Not just the two tribes. There are very few, even from Judah, that came back. Less than 65,000 returned back to that land. Now, the other word is, thus saith the Lord. And that occurs 11 times. And when God keeps repeating that, may I say to you, you know what it means? It means, thus saith the Lord. Not Vernon McGee, not man, but God is saying this that is here. Now, again, I read a letter. A person says, sometimes I step on their toe. Well, I'm not broadcasting really to be popular because I'd change my tactic quite a bit if I was doing that. I'm attempting to teach the Word of God. Now, if your toes get stepped on, God is stepping on them because I'm reading what the Word of God has to say, and we're going all through it. And that's the reason a book like Zechariah is not being taught today because people don't like to have their toes stepped on. And I'm thankful for the fact And I'm amazed at the number of people that are hearing the Word of God. It's a glorious day in which to live. It wasn't that way when I began my ministry. Now, with that in mind, may I get into the chapter by saying again that some commentators feel that chapter 8, even more than chapter 7, puts the Ten Commandments down on the people. I don't feel like that's accurate. I feel like that... This last part of chapter 7, God put the Ten Commandments down on them. They were weighed in the balances, and they were found wanting. They didn't measure up to God's standard at all. But this next chapter, will have some more to say about it. But what you have actually in this chapter is, especially in these first eight verses, God's ultimate purpose is not changed concerning His people, the nation Israel, and the land and Jerusalem. And at the present moment, God is not fulfilling any prophecy concerning Israel. He is dealing today with the church. He's calling out a body of believers in the church. And the church in Israel are entirely two entities. And when God gets through calling out the church. And when that takes place, I don't know. It's not geared to any man's calendar at all. It's on God's calendar, but he's never let me see it. Apparently, we got folk here in Southern California that had a look at it. At least they try to make us believe they did, and I don't think they have. Now, God knows when it is, but I don't know when it is, and they don't know when it is, and God's Word doesn't let you know. And he'll take the church out. Now, when he does, he'll turn to these people again. And these prophecies here are just simply saying in chapter 8 that their present return to the land is very small. But God says it's an adumbration. 
or it's just a little miniature of a return to the land that's coming in the future. Now let me read, beginning of verse 1, chapter 8 of Zechariah. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I was jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I was jealous for her with great fury. And when God says he's jealous, it's not the same as man's jealousy. But it means that God has the same thing in mind. I feel sorry for a woman who makes a statement, says, you know, my husband is not jealous of me. Well, my friend, that means he doesn't love you, if that is true. I hope he's jealous of you. I don't know about you, but I'm jealous of my wife. I married her for myself because I loved her. And I don't intend to share her with anybody else, and I won't. That's for sure. I'm jealous of her. And God says that concerning his people. says it to the church today. If you think that you can live for the world and the flesh and the devil and then serve God on Sunday, you're wrong. You won't make it, friends. If you happen to be his child and try that, he'll judge you. And I mean he'll judge you. But if you do that, live in that, it means you're not God's child. Because you see, he's jealous of those that are his own. And he's told us about sin in our lives. If we would judge ourselves, we'd not be judged. And he says if we confess our sin, he'll forgive us. And it has to be confessed. You can't have fellowship with him and have sin in your life, Christian friend. Now, will you notice verse 3? He says, Thus saith the Lord, I am returned unto Zion, and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Now, friends, that wasn't fulfilled then which was obvious to those people, it looks to the future. It hasn't been fulfilled since then, and it's not being fulfilled today. God says, and he makes it clear, he will return to Zion. And he makes it clear that he's going to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and it's going to be called a city of truth. Well, my gracious, it's a city where there's more religions there then you can imagine, and every Christian organization has built something there today, and all kinds of cults and isms that are... It's not the city of truth today. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. And I never saw anything there that I thought you could call holy. It's just not holy today, friends. It will be when he gets back there. But he's not back there yet. This prophecy... And we'll continue it next time. Looks to the future. God says to them, you have returned your little miniature, but you haven't really returned to me. But the day is coming when all of this will be fulfilled. My friends, what a glorious picture we have here. So now until next time, may God richly bless you. Now, friends, we're in the eighth chapter where we're getting God's final answer to these people who were complaining that they were going through a ritual and performing a liturgy and were being very religious. They were fasting, they were weeping and mourning and going through all of that. 
and God hadn't blessed them. And the Lord made it very clear to them that the problem was not with the ritual, problem was with them, that the ritual is inconsequential. In fact, it's meaningless. When the heart is wrong, the ritual is wrong. God made that clear to them. And then he also made it clear that when the heart is right, the ritual is right. Nothing wrong with the ritual. The thing that's wrong with the folk who are going through it. The people who are being religious are like this lady that I read about the other day that promotes our program, which she kept a young mother, married woman, from listening to our program for several years because of the life that she was living. And she was judging our program by that woman's life. May I say to you, you can go through a rite and a ritual. Now God makes it clear now in the eighth chapter, and some like to call this the positive side of God's answer. Well, it's doubly positive because it's God's purpose concerning Jerusalem is unchanged by any ritual. And the important expression here, it occurs 18 times, is the Lord of hosts. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came unto me, saying, and this now is God's answer, and he says that I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth. Now, Isaiah had previously made it very clear that Jerusalem is to become the capital of the earth. In the second chapter, we read that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, and it shall come to pass in the last days. And Zechariah now is looking on to the last days, encouraging the people that they have returned, and God has blessed them to a certain degree. But that's a miniature of what is going to come yonder in the future that there's a glorious day in the future. And that won't depend upon a ritual or a liturgy or a ceremony or jumping through somebody's little hook thinking that will please God. God says it's your heart that's going to have to be changed. And God says he's going to change their hearts and that the word of God would go forth from Jerusalem and be called the city of truth. Now, God says here, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established, and the top of the mountains shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob. He'll teach us his ways, and we'll walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And God makes it very clear that that'll be the day that they're going to beat their spears into pruning hooks. And they're going to beat their swords into plowshares. But we haven't come to that day yet. We better keep our atom bombs dry, ready for use. This mean, big, bad world we're in, never know when you need things like that. You see, there is coming a day. And that is what Zechariah is talking about when Jerusalem will be the city of truth and the mountain or the kingdom of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. In other words, the kingdom will be established. And he's speaking of the millennial kingdom that is yet in the future. Now, we'll see in these first eight verses that God's ultimate purpose is not changed concerning his people or the land and Jerusalem. And I'm reading now in verse 4. 
Thus saith the Lord of hosts, There shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem, and every man with his staff in his hand for every age. In other words, Jerusalem will be a place where old people can live. They won't have to go out to retirement centers or senior citizen cities. Now, I want to say something here that I know is not very popular. These senior citizens' places of retirement, they're painted to be very delightful places. But I don't know about you, and I've been to several of them, and may have to move to one before it's all over with. But frankly, I don't think they're very healthy. I know that we stop at a certain one every now and then and eat lunch because it's good food and reasonable. And I tell my wife, and she agrees with me on this, that it makes you feel very, very downcast. You go there and see nothing but old gray heads and people around. It's going to be nice that in Jerusalem they won't have to have a retirement center. People will be able to live in Jerusalem. I think they're going to improve on the method that they have today in the millennium. And not only will you have place for old people, and they'll be safe there, and will be welcome there, and will enjoy living there. We're told, verse 5, "...and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets of it." Well, that means they're not going to have automobiles. We'll get rid of the smog and get rid of the pollution. Won't be any pollution during the millennium because there's not going to be any cars. And the streets of Jerusalem are going to be playgrounds for the boys and girls. So you've got old age here, the old people, and you've got young people, boys and girls. And I think it's nice for Grandma and Grandpa to see the little grandchildren every now and then. Don't want them too long. When they get tired, they get honorary like their grandmother, and makes it a little difficult for grandfathers. And so he likes to send them home after a while. But it's wonderful that they can mingle. And I think it's good for the little folks to have a grandma and a grandfather that puts an arm around them and tells them how much he or she loves them because children need all the love they can get in this world. And this is a beautiful picture that's here, picture of old age and a picture... Children, this is the millennium. Jerusalem is the capital of the earth. Jesus is reigning there. The church is out yonder dwelling in the new Jerusalem. Somebody says, I thought the church would be with him. I think the church will be with him. I think he's going to commute back and forth every day from there. They won't have all the tie-up on the freeways in the millennium. He'll be able to come from the New Jerusalem down, I don't think it'll take him maybe over a couple seconds to make the trip, maybe not that long, and he'll commute back and forth into the city of Jerusalem. That'll be the capital of the earth. Then we're told here, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If it be marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, should it also be marvelous in mine eyes, saith the Lord of hosts? God says, you don't see what I see in the future. And if you think that what's happening here is wonderful, and they were greatly impressed when that delegation came down, the temple is being rebuilt, and many of the people had built their homes, and there was an air of prosperity in Jerusalem. 
And they said, my, it does look like God is really moving here. And God says, if you think this is something, tell the truth. He says, this is nothing compared to what it's going to be in the future. Now, notice again how often the word the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies occurs. Verse 7, thus saith the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. Now, that's quite interesting. The east country is the place that they've come from. A great many have come out of Yemen even in this day. And I'm told that there's still great numbers of Jews that are in the Orient. God says, I'll bring my people from the east country and from the west country. Now, where's the west country? Well, we're part of it, I think. If you keep going west of Jerusalem, I notice when I take a plane, they fly out of there west, and they just keep going west. And finally, I get back to Los Angeles. They'll be leaving this country then. Just think what New York City will become. It will become a ghost town, practically, because there are more Jews there than there are in that land. So in the millennium, why, New York City is going to be a different place altogether because God's bringing his people. He hasn't performed this yet. That's what he's telling them. He says, if you in the remnant think what you see is wonderful, think what I see out yonder in the future. Verse 8 now, And I will bring them, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people. They're not his people now. Somebody says to me, Do you believe that the Jews are God's chosen people? I think I shock them a little. I said, No, I don't think so. Well, they said, What do you mean? You say it on the radio. No, God's chosen people today is the church. Ye are a chosen generation. Your royal priesthood. Who's he talking about? The church today is that, where both Jew and Gentile have been brought together and made one in Christ. And that's the only real brotherhood that there can be in this world. And that's the church. Now, the church will be removed. And then God will take these people and return them to the land. And we've already seen in the visions that God will cleanse them. They need cleansing as we do. The church are a blood-bought, blood-washed people. Why? Because they're sinners. And as we said the other day, we're saved sinners right now. One of these days, I'm going to be a real saint. I'm a saint now by name, but my life doesn't look like a saint, I'll tell you that. It is something else. But one of these days, I'm going to be like him. And that's going to be a glorious day. Now, these people are going to be transformed also. And God says they shall be my people. When? In that day. When what? When they go back to Jerusalem. They're not in the city of Jerusalem. I've been through that old city of Jerusalem, and it's filled with Arabs. They're the ones that are living there today. Now, God says, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. And they're not back there in truth. They still deny the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah, and they do not accept him. In fact, there's no reference to God. I'm amazed, the leaders of that country today, how little, in fact, it's practically nil. They say less about God than anybody else. In fact, I heard an Arab leader 
saith, Allah wills it. Well, he didn't seem to be ashamed of his God, but Israel doesn't mention her God. They're not boasting of him at all. But God says, I'm going to be their God in truth and in righteousness. And righteousness means things are going to be made right. What a picture that we have here. Now, let me continue to move on when we come here to verse 9 as we move on down. In fact, from verses 9 to 19, you have the remnant from Babylon are to hear the prophets Haggai and Zechariah in view of the perspective of the glorious future. Also, they are to keep the commandments. Just because they didn't come back doesn't mean that they're excused from the commandments. And they are to listen to Haggai and Zechariah. Now, will you notice verse 9? Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong. Ye that hear in these days these words by the mouth of the prophets. And the prophets were Haggai and Zechariah. And they were the ones encouraging the people to build the temple, who were in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. And they're encouraging now those that didn't come up to help with the building of the temple. And they did help, by the way. Verse 10, For before these days there was no hire for man, nor any hire for beasts. In other words, unemployment was a real factor in the economics of the country at that time. Neither was there any peace to him that went out or came in because of the affliction. For I set all men, every one against his neighbor. Now, we're living in this country, and we've practically forgotten God. We've left him out. There are very few that make any reference to him that are in public life except they may ridicule him, and they call him Jesus Christ Superstar, or something that is, to my judgment, blasphemous. And God is pretty well left out. And we are wondering why we are having all this trouble with the different groups. They call them minority groups. And not only the racial divisions, but the social divisions, economic divisions geographical divisions. All of these things enter in today, and there's never been a time when there's been so much talk about let's get together, let's put the thing together, and let's stand together as a nation, and let's do this as one people, and all of that kind of talk that comes from leaders today, and let's do this and let's do that and we accommodate this minority group and that minority group and we get farther and farther apart. You know why? Because we've left God out. God says you're not having peace and there's division among us, all kinds of division, almost warfare that's taking place, turmoil and violence. What's the matter? Oh, my, every politician who runs for office, he's got the solution to it. The only thing is, he doesn't have the solution for it. And I want to say to you, I don't have the solution. But the Word of God says, there's no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. And the answer seems to be that we need to get God back in the picture. We need to turn to Him today. What a picture we have here. Now, will you notice verse 11? But now I will not be unto the residue of this people, as in the former days, saith the Lord of hosts. 
God says, I don't intend to bless you as you are now or as you were before ascension to captivity. But he says, I'm going to bless you for the seed shall be prosperous. This is verse 12. The vine shall give its fruit and the ground shall give its increase and the heavens shall give their due and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And God brought prosperity to that nation for a period of time. And I think that the great judgment came upon them, of course, when they rejected the Messiah. And Titus the Roman destroyed the city and scattered them throughout the Roman Empire. And they've never returned from that, according to the Word of God. Verse 13, It shall come to pass that as ye were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and ye shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. And of course, at the time I'm making this tape, there's still fingers being pointed at Israel. And practically all of Europe has deserted them because of the oil situation. And they are finding out that they're not worth more than a gallon of gasoline. It's a tragic situation. They've become a curse among the nations. And anti-Semitism is growing again throughout the world. But God says, when I save them, and I bring them back to that land, they're going to be a blessing to the world. You see, I believe that that nation will be the priests for the Gentile nations of the earth to stand between God and the Gentile nations. That'll be in the millennium. Verse 14, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, notice how often that occurs, thus saith the Lord of hosts, as I thought to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, saith the Lord of hosts, and I repented not. God says, I didn't change my mind about that. Now, God's purpose concerning Jerusalem and the nation Israel is unchanged by any ritual. doesn't make any difference what ritual that you're going by, why it is unchanged. And so... We have seen here that God says very frankly that he's going forward to the time when he's going to make Jerusalem the capital of this earth, and nothing could detour him, nothing could detract him. God says that he intends to do this by his marvelous infinite grace. You remember that Paul, writing to the Romans, He says in Romans 9, verse 15, For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Now, Moses, you remember, went to God and prayed about whether God would destroy the children of Israel. And God says, I'm going to hear you, Moses, but I'm not going to hear you because you're Moses, because I will show grace to those that I will show grace, and I'll show mercy to those that I will show mercy. And therefore, it's not to him that runneth. It's not to him that trots through a ritual. It's not to him that goes through a lot of church work. It's to him that is above. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that shows mercy. 
And my friend, today we can say again with Paul, I am what I am by the grace of God. Now, he's saying that to these people here. And in verse 15, he'd said, So again have I thought in these days to do good unto Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear ye not. God says, it's not because you've been through a ritual or whether you admitted a ritual, whether you do or whether you don't. I'm showing mercy to you. But this is not the end in itself. This will be a very small thing. But God looks down through the centuries and says, the day is coming when I intend to deal with you and will in that day do a glorious thing upon the earth. And he looks down to the millennium. Now, you will find here in verse 16, now, since they are going to represent God, that doesn't mean they can do as they please if it's by the grace and mercy of God. That doesn't mean, therefore, that you can live any kind of life like some people think. Listen to what God says now in verse 16. These are the things that ye shall do. Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? You've been saved by his grace and mercy. But wait a minute. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, if you love him, you're going to keep his commandments. Not to get saved, because you have been saved by his grace and mercy. And your obedience or your life will never add anything to your salvation. Now, he says to these people, these are the things that ye shall do. Speak every man the truth to his neighbor. This is the day when lying is acceptable in every walk of life. Business can't be depended upon today to tell the truth. Advertising today is very inaccurate. And the news media cannot be depended upon to tell the truth. And Washington cannot be depended upon to tell the truth. And it doesn't make any difference what party you're talking about. Neither one of them or no one else can be trusted, it looks like today. You can't trust men in any walk of life, not the military, nor education today in science. In all of these areas, we are finding that truth has suddenly gone out of style. And it's about time that boys and girls are taught in school that there's certain moral standards. And one of them is that if you don't tell the truth, you're a liar. And there's no other way around that. Then he says, execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. Now, in the gates was where the law court was in that day. And how many today have even confessed that they lied to a grand jury or lied when they were under oath? Execute the judgment of truth. Now, what he's talking about here is not the act of judging. He's not saying you're not the judge. You and I are going to judge whether we judge honestly or dishonestly, whether we judge truthfully are untruthfully. We're going to judge. And what he has in mind here is actually the motive. It means the thing that motivates judging, and that is truth. And this is the thing that he's saying to do. You see, actually, this is, again, putting the Ten Commandments down. 
And we find then him saying now in verse 17, "...let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor." That is, you not to covet anything that your neighbors, "...and love no false oath, for all these things are the things that I hate, saith the Lord." Now, if you want to know what God hates today, and we have all the bumper stickers today saying God is love, well, that's great, God is love, but God also hates. You couldn't love without hating some things. If you love the truth, you're going to hate the lie. If you love your child, you will hate a mad dog that comes into the yard to bite the child. You'd kill that mad dog if you love your child. God hates certain things, and I'd like to see that put up on billboards today. God hates lying. God hates covetousness. God hates, my, the different things that God hates. He hates a whole lot of things, friends, that the world is doing today. Now, verse 18, "...and the word of the Lord of hosts came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah joy and gladness and cheerful feast. Therefore, love the truth and peace. God says to them, I never gave you any fast days. And these days that you set up to fast and go through a nice little religious ritual, I'm going to turn those days into feast days, days of rejoicing, days of love and truth and peace. These are the things that are absent in our contemporary culture and society. I wonder if it's ever occurred to anyone that if we got back and taught the great biblical and moral values that are stated there, I wonder if maybe that might have a tremendous effect upon our society today. Well, some of us believe it would. Now, in verse 20, "...thus saith the Lord of hosts, it shall yet come to pass that there shall come peoples and the inhabitants of many cities, and the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go speedily to pray before the Lord." and to seek the Lord of hosts, I will go also. This looks on now to the fact when Jerusalem will become the capital, not only the political capital, but the religious capital of the earth. And it also looks forward to the time that we will find in the New Testament is called the millennium. It shall come to pass... God says, this is something that is for the future. And he says in verse 22, "...yea, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts where in Jerusalem." Now, I take it that does not mean Los Angeles. It means Jerusalem, and to pray before the Lord. Now, very frankly, Jerusalem is not an ideal place to go and pray. It just isn't geared for that today, because actually you see more religion there manifested and less Christianity 
than any place that I know of. But it will become the center of God's government during the millennium. And we last time referred you to Isaiah, the second chapter. And may I say to you, there are many scriptures along this line. You see why it's so important today to study the book of Zechariah. Now, a great men in our day have zeroed in on the book of Daniel. And you go to the average seminary library or any good library, and you will notice that there's volume after volume written on Daniel. Then you go down a little farther and see how many books you're going to find written on Zechariah. And there's a dearth of them written on Zechariah. I have a friend that he doesn't believe there's going to be a millennium on this earth, and he doesn't believe God will ever again turn to Israel, and that he will never again turn to Jerusalem, that he's through with all of that. And he wrote a book on Daniel. He told me, he says, I've proven my point in Daniel. And I said, it ever occurred to you that no prophecy is of any private interpretation. You don't study the book of Daniel by itself. Now, I said, why didn't you bring in a little of Zechariah? He looked at me rather funny. He said, well, I didn't need to. Well, not if you hold that theory that God's through with Israel. You can't handle Zechariah. But my friend, Zechariah makes it clear God's not through with Jerusalem. He's not through with the nation Israel. Now, will you listen to what he's saying here? Thus saith the Lord of hosts. Now, this is verse 23. In those days. What day? Well, it's that expression that we've had again and again. In that day, that day, those days. It's the millennium that's coming. The great tribulation is the beginning of it, but it ushers in the coming of Christ, and the reign of Christ that's called the millennium. And that, again, ushers in his eternal kingdom on this earth. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, in those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God's with you. Now, is God through with the Jew? Well, the day is coming in the millennium. Now, the church will be removed from the earth. You see, the church could not be here in a period like this. And I think the number 10 here rather suggests a great number. I am of the opinion that it represents the fact that the Gentile nations in that day will find Jerusalem very attractive, and they will go there. Why? The Lord Jesus will be there, and that will be the millennial temple, and that will be the place to worship God. Now, that makes this very important, you see.